So this this week I was having a sort of a coffee meeting. I guess it was a breakfast meeting actually with somebody, and we were just I was just we were talking about various things going on in the world, and I mentioned how sometimes when you're reading the news and you're thinking about the things that are going on in the world, and even outside of the news, and this is where my mind goes sometimes. Not that I'm happy it goes there, but even outside of the news, you think of worldwide the different countries, different places, even in our country, you think of neighborhoods, you think of uh, apartment blocks, you think of people's houses, and I just get caught up in thinking about the pervasiveness of evil in the world. I mean, you've got terrorist bombings and you've got wars going on, but then you've got the whole human trafficking issue, you've got abuse of children and husbands and wives and missing people and and just cruelty and maliciousness and, and 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 my mind just goes there to just how it just makes me sick sometimes when I think of how much evil there is in the world and and I said I said to the person I was with it's like it, it seems like you know I wonder why God wouldn't just ignore that rainbow <laughs> and just flood the whole thing again you know forget that promise you know forget that covenant just start over again. But God doesn't do that. He's actually already shown us that that doesn't work. That that no matter how righteous the family that he preserves, evil still flourishes. Because no matter how righteous the best people seem to be, no matter how good the best person you know seems to be, the problem of sin in the world is built into us. It's not in the world, it's in us. That's the problem with sin. It's ours. In Romans 3, Paul puts it this way. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Sin is the problem. Our sin, not the terrorist's sin, not the criminal's sin, not the politician's sin, not the drug lord's sin. Our sin is the problem with the world. The fact that we do not naturally turn to God, but we naturally turn away from God and after our own selfish desires. And there's one overarching message of the whole Bible. I want the whole Bible in a summary, all 66 books of it, it's this. Sin is a serious problem, but God has dealt with it. How are you going to respond to his solution? And there's lots of details along the way. I just summarized 66 books. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's a few more details to it than that. But, but that's what the Bible essentially has, is one message. There is an incredible plan of a holy God to deal justly with our sin and rightly with our sin so that we can recover our relationship with him for our joy and his glory. That's God's plan. That's what he's telling us in the Bible. You still have to read it, even though I've spoiled it. You've got, you've still got to keep reading it. But that's God's message. And that story, that message, that's the good news, or that's the gospel that the Bible tells. And it tells that story, and God tells that story over 4,000 years and 66 different books and um, you know, many different writers. And in some cases, the Bible tells us that story very neatly in one book. And I think in one of my favorite books, the book of Ruth. Right? You can take the book of Ruth, a family runs from God, they disobey, and then a wife and a daughter-in-law 
excuse me, turn back to God, and they discover that there's a Redeemer that's been provided to rescue them, and God rescues them and restores them to joy. That's the book of Ruth. It's also the book of the Bible, right? So sometimes the whole story gets told in one book. And then sometimes, in some cases, that message can be found in a single chapter. And that's our psalm today, the message that sin is a problem, God has a solution, and if we accept his way, the results are joy. And so let's read the text of Psalm 32, remembering that we learn the most from the Psalms when we put ourselves in the place of the songwriter. And in this case, it's King David again. We've looked at a few of David's Psalms and one of his son Solomon's as well. But David puts his own life on display for us here by the Holy Spirit for us to learn from him. And so let, let me just pray, actually, before we open up Psalm 32 and give you a little time to turn to it. Father God, we look into your word this morning just amazed at the consistency of your message, that you have one thing that you want us to know, that you love us, that you have a way to redeem us, that you've provided that way through your son, Jesus Christ. And we just simply have to turn and accept it, and you will restore us to the joy that you have intended for us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 32 says, A mascal of David. And most believers, most, most commentators believe that that word mascal, even though we don't have a perfect Hebrew translation for it, means a teaching song, a song that we're meant to learn from. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stray near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to unpack this psalm in four parts that are reflected in sort of the fundamental problem of the human condition. And the four parts are this, and then we'll go through them. Sin, consequences, confession, redemption. So part one, sin, verses one and two. And I'm really glad that David started off this psalm the way he did in the first two verses by saying, blessed is the one, twice. Because the whole middle part of this psalm does not feel like blessing. So it's good to begin by understanding that the news that David is about to impart to us in this psalm is a psalm of blessing, okay? So if it seemed kind of depressing in the middle part there, David's coaching us right off the bat and he's saying this is a blessing, 
The lesson he is teaching is a lesson of blessing, and that's hopeful because the reality of this lesson, this news that David is giving us, this teaching that we have, is that it doesn't and it won't feel like blessing when we're in the middle of it. When you're in the middle of this good news, it will feel very much the opposite of blessing. It will not feel good to you. The blessing comes from the forgiveness and the covering and the release from the consequences of sin that follows. Sin is the problem that David needs to be released from when you read this song. It isn't depression. We, we did Psalm where David was dealing in the pit with his depression and, and uh, his spiritual depression, seeking the Lord to lift him up. This is not the onset of enemies, which if you read through the Psalms, David talks repeatedly about the onset of his enemies and these outside forces of evil that are after him. This is not the betrayal of a friend, which we looked at in uh, Psalms last week. David this time is dealing with his own indwelling ugly sin. This is not enemies. This is not depression. This is not a friend who's betrayed him. This is David's own problem. David has nobody to blame here but himself. This is his problem, his sin. And he uses three words for it even. He calls his problem transgression, which translates sort of to willful rebellion. He uses the word sin, which is an offense, specifically an offense in in the Hebrew. The word sin is an offense that causes harm that needs to be repaid. And then he calls it iniquity, which is a punishable offense, an offense that should be punished. And he uses all three of these exact words here, I think, on purpose, because they're the same exact three words that God uses in Exodus 34.7 when he says that he is a faithful and loving God, faithful to forgive transgression, iniquity, and sin. So God uses all three of those words for the condition of the human nature, and he says he's faithful to forgive those things. And so maybe David is just kind of in his song here reminding God of what he had said back in Exodus, that, yeah, these three things, I've got them, God, but you said that you were faithful to forgive those three things and those are the three things I have and to get a sense of what these are in David's mind you have to consider the circumstances David is looking back on as he now writes this teaching song to the congregation to sing and the and the time in his life when he's looking back on almost certainly is the period of the time of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 which many of you as soon as I start the story will remember in the events of King David's life King David is at the height of his power His generals are all winning all of the wars. Israel was secure. He was rich. All the stuff was his. And God was blessing him. And then he saw Bathsheba on her roof. And David wanted what he could not have. But he was a king, so he took it anyway. And then Bathsheba gets pregnant. And the husband, Uriah, is a soldier who's been away for months fighting in King David's wars. So he has not been home. So he will start to ask uncomfortable questions at some point because his wife is pregnant. And so David cleverly puts Uriah on leave trying to figure out how to solve this problem so that he will come home. And so the husband comes home, but he is such a loyal guy, and this is where it just breaks your heart, that he refuses to go and sleep in his own house with his own wife because his mates are all out fighting. And he says to David, what would I do? Go and sleep at home in the comfort of my bed with my wife while all my friends are out on the front fighting your war? I can't do that. So David's plan is foiled because Uriah never goes to be with his wife. And so then David gets desperate and he assigns Uriah to the front lines and he actually orders the other majors and lieutenants out there to retreat after they put Uriah on the front lines. You pull back from him and this plan works. So David has solved his problem. 
Uriah is killed in battle, nice and neat, no investigation needed. And he takes Bathsheba for his own wife. A baby is born, no questions. But the chapter ends, God is displeased. No kidding. God is displeased. Maybe the understatement of the Bible. (laughs) Right? And about a year later, God sends David a prophet, Nathan, who tells David a story of a rich man who has many flocks, thousands of sheep, and when a visitor comes, instead of choosing to slaughter one of his own sheep, he, he takes a lamb, he takes a sheep from a poor farmer who only has one and he loves this sheep and he says, I'm going to take that one and slaughter it for this traveler. And David, the king, is incensed at the injustice of it and he tells the prophet Nathan that this guy needs to come to justice until Nathan points out, actually, David, the man is you. And it all comes crashing in on David, and he sees exactly what is going on. And so he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now notice he doesn't say, I have sinned against Bathsheba, which he did, and sinned against Uriah, which he did. He certainly did those things, but David goes right to the crux. He knows what real trouble he is in. He sinned against God. He sinned against his Lord. And so what is David to do? What is David to do with this sin? What are we to do? And you think, wait, what do you mean? We didn't commit adultery. We didn't kill somebody. We didn't have him killed by some hitman or send him out to war. Well, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what's been done and not done. And I don't know who will hear this sermon in the future. I don't know if you've murdered or you've been unfaithful. David's murdered and been unfaithful here, committed adultery. God's seen it all before. He's seen all of that sin. But nobody escapes this lesson. Because remember, when Jesus came and he was teaching his disciples the true meaning of the law and at the heart of God, and he told them in the sermon that is recorded in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard it, that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. Rightly so. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then he goes on and he says, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we ask ourselves then, we have to put ourselves in the place of David, even though we are maybe not kings who can have people killed off and take whatever person we want into our harem. We have to ask, what about emotional abandonment in a marriage or emotional infidelity where we put our hearts on someone other than our spouse? or setting our affections too strongly on another, or lust, or pornography? What about cruelty, and mockery, and just meanness, and anger, and resentment? Jesus says, these attitudes in your heart are the same kind of sin as adultery and murder. They're the same thing. And those can hit all of us close to home. And the consequences of our sin is ugly. Not just ugly for others, but ugly for ourselves too. David goes on to to explain his problem. And his first solution, which didn't help, is to just ignore it and keep quiet about it. He says in verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David said nothing about what he had done for months, right? When Nathan finally confronted him, if you read that in 2 Samuel, the child had already been born. So for more than nine months, probably close to a year, maybe more than a year, David had kept this secret, and he must have still worshipped at the temple. David still attended all of the feasts that would have taken place during that year. 
He was the king. He couldn't just not show up. So he sang lots of praise songs and he prayed to God. But about these sins, he kept silent. That whole time he was going to temple, going to the feast, singing the songs up in the congregation, having the feasts, but he never confessed this or admitted them. Maybe convinced himself even that they never happened or even believed his own story. That's the thing with powerful people. They start to believe their own press, right? And we do it to ourselves. We start to convince ourselves that we're all not all that bad. And, you know, there was reasons for that. And I, we can justify how we feel. And, yeah, I don't like that person, but think about what they did to me. And, you know, so we start to justify and we just don't bring up the fact of our own sin. But the result was guilt and regret and sorrow and turmoil. He says his bones were wasting away and he was groaning all the day long. David could not escape the consequences, either physical or spiritual, of his sin. He says, your hand was heavy upon me. David is wise here in the spirit to realize that it was God's doing to cause him this distress. David is eaten up by the regret and the guilt and the shame of his sin, and he realizes it was your hand, God, that was upon me. To feel guilt and shame and regret, God is acting for our benefit when we're distressed by our sin. And David realizes this. God says he lays his hands on us until we're weary from it. We're tired of fighting. We are worn out. And God gets us to the point where we're at the end of our rope and we are feeling spiritually bankrupt and we're feeling like David here, just eaten up inside by our sin. And he finally gets us to the point where we're ready to confess and to repent, where we're willing to see our sin for our sin. Have you felt that way? Because this is the point where it doesn't feel like a blessing. Have you felt like that in your life? I know the believers here have at some point because that's how you came to the cross and came to repentance because there was a time in your life where you just realized how sinful you were and you couldn't stand it anymore. The shame, the accumulation of regret. It's the only way through that feeling to forgiveness. And I get it. When God's hand is on us, when we're where David is right here, it doesn't feel like blessing. It doesn't feel like God is doing a good thing for us. It feels awful. It feels distressing. It feels even panicky when you get at this point in your life. But it's supposed to feel awful. It's supposed to feel horrible. You're supposed to panic because you are a sinner in the sights of an angry God. God is holy and cannot deal with sin except one way through the cross of his son Jesus Christ and so you're supposed to feel that way and David is supposed to feel exactly the way he feels the apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 he says as it is speaking to his believers and his brothers and sisters in the church in Corinth which was as we all know was a pretty crazy church like ours pretty messed up But he says in 2 Corinthians, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. David could have just stayed in his worldly grief, eaten up by his sin, could have destroyed his health, could have destroyed his relationships, could have destroyed him mentally, could have destroyed him spiritually. He could have stayed in that worldly grief and gone the path that we've seen so many people around us go. But his grief became godly grief because it led him to repentance. God wants you to experience a godly grief that leads to repentance. 
which is verse 5, where David comes through to confession. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David needs to confront the reality of his sin in his confession, and he does that in three stages. First of all, he says, I acknowledged my sin. Step one is just to admit the sin, admit there is sin. We live in a culture, we live in a world where they don't even admit that there is sin. That sin is even a thing that you can talk about. Until some of these things started happening with ISIS. And newscasters were actually starting to use the word evil with relation to what was going on. How can you say something is evil? These are newscasters and media people that have been taught for at least two decades or maybe longer that you can't say things are evil. You can't say things are wrong. They're simply different. But they were saying it was evil. But we live in a culture that doesn't even acknowledge sin, that anything goes. It's just your perception of things. But David here says, I acknowledge my sin. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in it, in us. So step one is acknowledging sin. We just deceive ourselves if we deny it. Lots of people try to deny there's any such thing as sin. Or some of us might say there is sin, but it's out there with the drug lords and the terrorists. They're the sinners. Certainly I don't have any sin. I'm a good person. And who can judge anyway? Don't judge me. We're a defensive species when it comes to being held morally accountable, aren't we? Just try to hold somebody accountable to the idea of sin or something in their life, and our defenses are up. We pretend there is no sin and that we don't sin. But it is possible to acknowledge sin and not deal with it. So David goes on and he says, I didn't cover up my iniquity. Or another way of saying it, I stopped trying to cover up and hide the sin from myself and from you. So David had been covering this up from himself. I mean, God knew about it. He thought maybe he was hiding it from God. God already knew. But he was hiding it from himself for about a year. And he finally had to stop pretending. And we have to lay ourselves open before God who already knows anyway and stop the game of trying to hide our sin and cover it up and pretend that we don't sin, that we don't have it. And then finally, David says, I confessed. In moments of brutal honesty, we can acknowledge our sin and we can acknowledge our rebellion and our anger and our cruelty and our disdain, whatever our sin is, and we can expose it and have it all lay out bare before God and man and still not be sorry for it. We've seen that in culture too. We've seen that in people's lives where they just glory in their sin. They say, yeah, whatever, call me a sinner if you want. This is all the stuff I do, but I'm not sorry for it. And so we have to acknowledge, we have to expose it, but that's not enough. We have to confess it. We have to confess our sin. As one great saint once said, we must condemn ourselves so that God can acquit us. So confession or repentance, as Jesus called it, is turning away from our own self-justification. And instead of aligning ourselves with our desires and what we think is right, we change our mind and we turn and we align ourselves with God and His righteousness. Repentance or confession is basically agreeing with God that He's right. And that we have to change our minds, not change His mind. And so we, when we do that, when we confess and we repent and we depend on God, He forgives that same follower of Jesus, the disciple John, in the same letter, actually the very next sentence, he wrote, he writes it this way. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And this is the good news. Remember I said Psalms was like the encapsulation of the good news of God's dealing with the problem of sin? It's a story that he tells through the whole Bible, but he's telling it here in this Song of David with David on display for us so that we get the message right here. Sin is a problem. It will destroy us. But God has a solution. If you confess your sin, he will forgive it. That is the message that God wants us to get. And so David is remembering that day with Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 13, when he declared, remember, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And I, I, I stopped there, if you were following along. I actually stopped in the middle of the verse there. Because Nathan immediately answers, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. As soon as David confessed, he was released from his sin. And notice that this is the Old Testament, but David did not sacrifice anything. David did not go up to the temple and burn an offering. David did not make any promises to God. David just confessed his sin, and as we see in this psalm, trusted God, he'll talk about later. And God's plan for our salvation involves nothing more on our part than trusting that he is faithful to those who will confess their sin to him. Even under the Old Testament law, David didn't go sacrifice anything. He didn't go burn an offering. He didn't put his hands on a scapegoat. He didn't do any of that stuff. He just said, I've sinned before the Lord. And he confessed it and it dawned on him and he realized and he repented. He knew his problem. And Nathan immediately said, the Lord's forgiven you. Because he didn't understand it at the time. I'm sure Paul says in the New Testament that what has been revealed in the New Testament in the time after the cross was a mystery that was hidden in the time of the Old Testament. So David, I don't think, understood what was going on here. But the reality is, is how God was able to forgive him was because God had already arranged before the foundation of the world that his son would come and die on a cross. And that would pay for the sins, all the sins, of any who would confess him and believe in him. Even David's sins before Jesus got there. Because it was already established in time that this was going to happen. And so God, Nathan, the prophet, is able to say to David, you're forgiven because you've confessed and you've trusted in God. God's already made a way for your sin to be taken away. And John remembers exactly how Jesus spoke it to us in the New Testament, the verse that I sure you all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes, or you could say trusts in him, should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. And so we can trust God. David goes on in verses 6 to 7 to talk about the trust that he has in God, in God's protection of him, and all the things and all the, the stuff that God is for him, surrounding him in love and protecting him when the waters rise and all of that stuff. His trust is in God. But I want to get to the really good part, as if that's not good enough. And that offers out there for all of us in our sin. The good part is the redemption that follows. In verses 8 and 9. And the voice changes here. It's I, God, will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. This is what God plans for you after your confession and after your repentance. God is not just leaving you alone. He plans redemption. He wants to redeem your life. He says, I'll instruct and teach you. When we move from sin to forgiveness and from darkness to light, our minds have the opportunity to be transformed and renewed by God. God teaches us and gives us wisdom, which is very different from the wisdom of the unrepentant and sinful world. 
you'll notice, Christians, brothers and sisters, that your wisdom and your thoughts on things are very different from your unsaved friends. You know, their response to things and people in the world is very different, and their way of thinking is very different than you if you have been having your mind transformed by being instructed by God and taught by God in His Word. Because our minds are foolish and darkened apart from the revelation of God and the redemption of God. He plans not just to forgive us of our sin, but to transform our life and to redeem us or to heal us or to restore us. Romans 1, 21 and 22, Paul talks about our life before God and the life of the world in darkness. When he's talking about the sin of the world, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. But look at what David is writing here in Psalms. He's saying, After I finally confessed and God forgave me, then God comes along and he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you will go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God does not want you to be in the dark. God does not want you to be foolish. He wants to impart wisdom to you. God desires to give us counsel, to guide us when we turn from our sin, and then to watch over us as we journey in our life with him. He says, with my eye upon you. Now, I've been watching the Blue Jays a little bit lately. You've been watching the Blue Jays? They're winning, so I watch them. I only watch teams that are above 500. It's my rule, because I want to be entertained, and there's no fun in losing, so I'm selfish that way. But I've been watching the Blue Jays, and I noticed Gibby, John Gibbons, right, the manager in the dugout. And he's always sitting at the back, you know, chewing on some sunflower seeds, watching. Or he's up at the rail with the arms, and he's watching. And he's watching them play. And it's not like he can do anything because he can't play, but he's always watching and he's sending signals into the game. And it's the same with the Olympics. I've been watching some of the Olympics lately and I notice all the coaches, they've all trained these people for four years, maybe longer, a couple, three, four years they've been training them. I mean, they know what they're supposed to do, whether they're wrestling or gymnastics or tumbling or whatever they do, the fencing. What, the co- there's nothing left for the coach to do. I mean, they just, but they sit there and they wa- the coach is watching their student, they're watching the one who they have trained. Their eye is on them. And they are calling out encouragement and instruction during the event so that they know what to do and how to correct what they're doing. And that's, those are poor metaphors for the God of the universe, but that's just a shadow of what it's like. God is not leaving us alone to struggle by on our own strength and knowledge. He is training us and preparing us and redeeming us and healing us and getting us ready for victory. And His eye is honest, and he's guiding us watchfully. That's our God. And now notice when David says this of this watchfulness of God, what it is not. It is not God watching to catch us failing or watching to enforce a bunch of rules and restrictions and regulations just because he's a God that decided, you know what, I don't like drinking, and so I think drinking's bad, and so I'm going to watch you and make sure you don't do that. Or I think, you know... Doing this is bad, or doing that is bad. And so I'm just watching to find out what is bad. In fact, David clarifies, he says, don't be like that. God doesn't want us to be like a horse or a mule that has no understanding and needs a bit and a bridle to go in the right direction. That is not what God's instruction is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a bunch of restraints and and guards and bits and bridles so that we don't behave in the wrong way. God wants us to have a mind like His so that we don't need rules and barriers and bits and bridles because we would naturally walk as we should walk and live as we should live because we see that that is what is best for us. 
So God wants to teach and instruct and counsel and watch us so that we are transformed to realize that those things are bad for us and they're harmful to our joy. If you ask me or, or you ask any other mature Christian in your life, they will tell you that God's instruction and wisdom and guidance has not been a hindrance or a barrier or a restraint to them. It has been a release. It has been a freedom to be instructed by God through his word. To turn aside from those things has been freedom, not a restraint, not a bit and a bridle. God wants you and your mind and ways redeemed so that you can live in freedom not bridled and bitted like a horse. So David concludes with a contrast at the end of Psalms here. He says in verses 10 and 11, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so David just finishes with a simple contrast. He contrasts the sorrows of the wicked, right, which he knows. Just go back to verses 3 and 4. Right? David knows the sorrows of the wicked. He knows what it's like to be eaten up inside by regret and disappointment and shame and guilt. He knows the sorrows of the wicked and he contrasts the sorrows of the wicked, which he personally knows very well, and the joy of the person who trusts in God. You can be sorrowful, regretful, disappointed, resentful, or you can have the joy and steadfast love of the Lord. This psalm, this song is the gospel. This is the great news of the whole Bible captured for us in one song and written large for us in the life of King David, who by the Holy Spirit so amazingly put his life on display for us in the Psalms. It's written large for us in the confession of King David. Sin is a problem. Sin is an eternally deadly problem. It will consume and destroy you. And you may relate to verses 3 and 4 today. You may be eaten up inside with your sin. You may have regrets and shame and guilt that you do not know how to deal with. And David is telling you how to deal with it. You go to the Lord and he is quick and ready to forgive. He wants to. He sent his son to die for you, to make a way for him to deal with your sin justly and be able to forgive you out of his mercy and his love. And David says, this is a blessing. This is the best news you can ever hear. Not just today, it's the best news you will hear for the rest of your life. That God wants to save you. This is the gospel. David says, that's why he says right at the beginning, this is a blessing, right? I'm I'm glad that he told us it was a blessing at the beginning because the middle part is uncomfortable. And when you're in it, it doesn't feel happy. But there is love and joy and life through confession. And so we have to take a steely-eyed look at the heart of our own sin and our own darkness. And we have to uncover it all and lay it out before God and repent of it. And the resentment and bitterness and cruelty and anger and disdain or adultery or lust or abandonment or unfaithfulness, whatever it is, if we try and justify it, if we try and deny it, if we try and keep it secret, if we just stay quiet about it, it will consume us. But the best news is is that when we trust God with our sin, his response is not to condemn us, but to forgive us. He redeems us, not only forgive us, but then restore us by his teaching and his instruction and by his Holy Spirit and his watchfulness. He replaces our foolishness with wisdom and he leads us out of darkness and into light and he surrounds us with his love and promises us gladness and eternal rejoicing in the goodness of his faithfulness. That's what David is teaching us here. He's teaching us the gospel. 
before Jesus even showed up. And that gospel message is there for us as Christians. It's there for us as non-Christians. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what's eating you up inside. But don't stay silent about it. Confess it to God. Bring it to God. Through his son, Jesus Christ, he's made a way for you to trust in him and your sins will be forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this psalm. Thank you for King David. Don't thank you for his failures, but I thank you for your redemption of them. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that caused him to put this down and teach us from his life. We thank you for your son who came and was willing to die voluntarily for our sin, to take on his own body and more importantly on his own soul the burden of the sins of the world. Father, we are murderers and we are adulterers. Let's try not to kid ourselves. There isn't anywhere we wouldn't go except that by the grace of you and your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the guidance of your Holy Spirit, you preserve us. And so, Father, I thank you that this is the best news in the world. I thank you that we have a God who loves us, who just wants us to turn to him and repent. And I pray for any here who have in their heart the stirrings of the Holy Spirit to confront their sin and repent of it and turn it over to you, that they can trust you wholeheartedly, that you will not condemn, but you stand ready to forgive. And that you'll begin a new life with them that they can't imagine. Father God, I pray for that miracle today. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.